This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today we are going to be reviewing Discovery Episode 406, Stormy Weather. But first, we're going to start with news. And normally we save our Discovery news until the end. But this just in, surprise, Discovery's going on hiatus. Uh, you know what? I'm not shocked by this. I am not surprised. <laughs> it's always been in the back of my mind of... A couple things. One, they've never told us how many episodes there are this season, and they still Which haven't. Is weird. That is weird. And they've never confirmed they're, that they're going to run straight, including overlapping with Prodigy, even though they did some overlap before, uh, before Prodigy went on hiatus. So what's going to happen is after next week, episode seven of Discovery, Discovery will go on hiatus until February 10th. So that means that after next week's Discovery episode, the week after that, Prodigy's back for right. five episodes. And after five episodes of Prodigy, Discovery's back for X amount of episodes, say six episodes. Do you think that they're doing this to make it easier for us to do reviews on our podcast? That was my first thought. They're like, Tony and Lori, <laughs> they're really worried about us. This is like a Christmas gift for us or something. No, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing is, like, why didn't they just announce this earlier? Does, did they not know earlier? Was this is, is this a post-production pandemic problem? As usual, they're being tight-lipped. They're not confirming or denying anything, except that it's going on hiatus, and that's that. Um, they announced this on social media a few hours after the episode was released, um, episode six. And look, they did this in season one, and I... As I recall, it was a post-production issue that they just needed more time to get the episodes done. So they took a break. And that's probably what it is again this time. And it's almost always visual effects. Yep. Takes a while to make the show so pretty. Yeah. So episode eight must have a lot of visual effects. <laughs> There's another ripple effect of this. So we're now going to go Discovery, Prodigy, back to Discovery. Discovery will then come back in February 10th and run through February, possibly into March. We don't know how many episodes there are, but in September they announced Picard season two is coming in February. I don't think Picard season two is still coming in February. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't bet on it. They're not saying it's not coming, but they're not saying it is either. I think it would be very unusual. Like running something at the same time as prodigy can kind of make sense, but running Picard and discovery at the same time does not, make a whole lot of sense for them no. their, like uh, doesn't align with their previous strategies i'd rank this at a at a like a less than 10 percent chance that picard's coming in february as of now and uh so probably march for my birthday you know how far does the ripple effect go so because we were kind of thinking strange new worlds would be in may if picard slips a month or two months does you know does does, does the whole house of cards go forward or do they just get back on schedule in may or june who knows yeah i don't know we'll see time will tell <laughs> even though we don't know when star trek picard season two is coming earlier this week before we got this news we did post an update on the site all about the latest little tidbits from star trek picard patrick stewart did a, a kind of a fluffy uh, profile for this online magazine doesn't really say anything. I'm not sure what it means, but he's saying that he, he's become more childlike as he's got older, but that 
in the last six months, he's been choosing my serious Picard <laughs> as I play, you know, whatever that means. So, and then he says, I've been seriously trying to commit myself to how to be a leading actor. Yeah, he says he never thought of himself that way, which is so funny. Yeah, I mean, I guess his name's on the show, but he's, you know, he's starred in many things. But I don't know. Evan Ivagora, uh, who plays our favorite Elnor on the show. As opposed uh, to our least favorite Elnor? <laughs> of all the Elnors. He's, he's our favorite of all of them. It's true. He did a cameo. If you guys remember. Uh, Michelle Hurd. Michelle Hurd did a cameo last month where she kind of reconfirmed that Whoopi Goldberg is on the show. And so Evan did one where he kind of talks about how he can't believe she did that. And this just gets me thinking, you know, did they tell them all to not talk about Whoopi? Why are they treating Whoopi like a secret? I don't know. I don't understand because it was a very public thing when Patrick Stewart went on her show and invited her onto Picard and said, we want you to be on it. There were headlines. There were news stories. And then all of a sudden, none of the clips that came in had her in them. Nobody, You had that weird moment with Akiva, right, where you were asking about her and he didn't yeah, say he, anything. And now everyone's acting like it's some crazy piece of news that Michelle heard spoiled. But we all knew about it. But for whatever reason, they're treating it like a secret. But he talks about, you know, hugging her. And it sounds like they've got scenes together. He also talks about uh, working with John Delancey and how charming he is. So Elnor, I guess, is going to meet Q as well. So the scenes with Guinan and Q aren't just going to be with Picard himself. If you're meeting Elnor, you're probably meeting the whole game, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised they were allowed to hug, but I'm glad to hear that they were. He promised it was all within the rules. I don't know. So sure. you know, a little behind the scenes thing, um, Jeff Russo shared in image of a scoring session so they're back on the scoring stage it's nice for him to be back in the scoring stage and they're almost done with season two of picard recording the score yeah, great. so the production designer for the show is dave blass is a, a huge star trek nerd himself um is always tweeting about star trek he has now started to count down each week by re-watching season one and sharing some nice images from the show, uh, design sketches, little insights into like La Serena and stuff like that. So that's some, so follow him. Cause he's also dropping season two hints, little hints, like there's going to be some changes to Chateau Picard and no real spoilers, but he's, he's worth. I was just going to say the exact same sentence you started. He's well worth following on Twitter. If you're a Star Trek fan. What else was there? Well, I did talk about um, La Serena and why it always looks so empty. Yeah, I mean, th that kind of, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of La Serena. I'm going to say that, you know, but he did talk about how, you know, it's empty because it's a cargo ship. And yes, cargo ships are still needed because there's certain things that can't be replicated. And he showed some, you know, design artwork that kind of showed it more in this kind of cargo ship thing and how the nacelles actually flip around a little bit, which they never really showed us. It's definitely going to be back in season two because we've seen that. I think it's going to be gone in season three, though, because we're still seeing new images of some new Starfleet ship for season three, which they're shooting now. Um, the showrunner shared an image of showing the armory and a whole lineup of phaser rifles, right. which 
some fans are like, oh, rifles, you know, like is, you know, mocking the fact that the show has phaser rifles. And he and Dave Glass were replying back with like images of Kirk holding a rifle. Yeah, and, hello. You know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's like, come on, you know, phaser rifles have existed for since literally since the beginning. And there's always been an armory also. Yeah, it's yeah. not like this is the most important. He's also showed a picture of sickbay. I don't know. Just people on, you know, it's Twitter. <laughs> yeah. It's Twitter. You could do a whole <laughs> podcast just about the crazy things people say about Star Trek on Twitter. There are things you can complain about and you get but complaining about there being a rack of phaser rifles on a ship is, I don't know, find something better to complain <laughs> about. <It's-> <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Maybe they'll all be uh, converted into swords. And everybody will have to fight with swords. Sorry, that was just a Day of the Dove reference. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we still have Picard to look forward to. But in the meantime, if you want to enjoy TNG Picard and all of the classic Star Trek series from original series up through Enterprise, you are going to have to get Paramount Plus <laughs> starting in January because all of those five classic shows are leaving Amazon Prime Video and Hulu. In in the USA. Right. In the USA. Sorry, this Canadian should know better. In the USA. In January, they're all going. And that's part of a you know a strategy that Paramount Plus has been working on for a while. They've made no secret that they're letting these licensing deals lapse. People have gotten used to I mean, the, the Star Trek shows have been on Netflix for a decade before they started leaving. I think there's still a couple left. Yep. And uh, they've been on Hulu and Amazon for many, many years. And so even though people got used to it, this is kind of now the new normal. Everybody's doing this. You know, if you want to watch The Office, it's not on Netflix anymore. You got to go to Peacock. Yeah. So, yeah, they're all they're doing this. I mean, you can still buy episodes on Amazon and you can get the Paramount Plus app through Amazon if you like. But basically, if you want to see Star Trek... And you're in the America, you're going to need Paramount Plus. It makes sense. Everyone's doing this. This is kind of the new thing. But there is a bit of a downside to this. So, so yes, Paramount Plus will now be the sole home of Star Trek streaming in the USA. Probably for both movies and TV. Just like if you want Star Wars, you got to go to Disney Plus, etc., etc. One thing you do lose with this is... The opportunity for people who have some of these big, you know, because Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu, everyone in the USA probably has one of the three almost, right? Right. Or some people like me have all of them. (laughs) Yeah. And so you have the opportunity to just discover a Star Trek show. And we've certainly seen that uh, with kind of a new generation of people discovering Voyager and 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 ds9 and you know they've in the documentaries and at at conventions you know the celebrities talk about meeting new people who found the show only recently and you know there will be that with paramount you know people who sign up to paramount plus because of spongebob and all you know or other content rupaul whatever you know they and their families can discover star trek but it will be limited to that and you know people who catch it on um, you know, H and I, uh, terrestrial TV, where it'll still be syndicated for a while, I guess. And I think BBC America still runs reruns or something. Oh, they always used to. I remember that. But for the most part, the kind of 
stumbling upon Star Trek and rediscovering it randomly, having it be recommended to you on, you know, by the Netflix algorithm will no longer be a thing as of 2022. And obviously, Viacom CBS is aware of that. I mean, they're not just doing this with Star Trek. Twilight Zone's leaving. Um, Twin Peaks. Yeah. You know, so that they're saying we're going to keep our stuff on our platform. You keep your stuff on your platform. And, you know, we'll, we all get to keep our toys um, and we're <laughs> you're going to stop sharing. Right. If you want to play, you got to come over to my house. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> You know, what are you going to do? It's there's it, I do feel bad for the fans out there who have been binging on one, you know, on their favorite platform. And they now feel like, well, now I have to get Paramount Plus, which is, I guess, part of the evil plan. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not that evil, but I do wish they'd upgrade their interface. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, if I mean, that's gonna... the reason that I watch it on other platforms. Is because I prefer the other platforms. Well, you can watch. I mean, the, the sneaky thing is you could add Paramount Plus to your Amazon channels or to your Apple channels, um, and I think Roku as well. And you still get to use that interface. So right. your, your Amazon interface will become your Paramount Plus interface. I think they've ironed out the kinks. Like I remember when Discovery, maybe it was season two or something, and I had Paramount Plus through. Amazon and it would always come later. Like I'd be waiting. I remember waiting for short treks and being frustrated that they weren't available. Um, as as any Star Trek fan who's sitting there counting the minutes till something goes up and then being mad that it's not there. But I, I feel like they've worked all that stuff out since then. We also have a little bit of information on the new season of Lower Decks, courtesy of an interview that Mike McMahon did at Geek Girl Authority. He says that they are shipping the animatics for season three right now and that he expects it to premiere around the same time next year as the last season did, so that's August. And he says that the new season starts off with Mariner and Jennifer already dating, although he says it's not about that, that's not the story, but that's just something that's happening. It's funny how I just didn't, maybe I was the only guy surprised by that, you know, in the finale. I mean, I you know, I was fine with it, but because I kind of was thinking Jennifer and Boimler were going to be a thing. But now it's so obvious that the Mariner Jennifer thing was set up from the beginning. From the because beginning. They were doing that thing that kids do where they like punt each other and insult each other when they like each other. He did talk about the character Talyn, which was the Vulcan from the Three Ships episode, who was assigned to Starfleet, reconfirming that she comes back in season three, but not a lot. But the the weird thing is, is that because they write the show so far in advance, they had no idea how Talyn would be, and that episode would be seen by the fans and they weren't sure you know how much to put her in because if people didn't like the character then having a lot of this character in season three and i in a way i'm kind of disappointed in that that they should have just trust their gut because it was a great character everyone loved it they loved the character well, I, they should have just i think he's gone for he it. said that though that they were writing it before they'd even seen that final episode so I think they hadn't even seen how it all came together. And maybe if they'd had a chance to see it even separate from fan reaction, they would have realized, oh, we have something really good here. That's true, I guess. I mean, yeah, if you just have the written word because they don't have the – because there's something about the way it's animated, yeah. the subtlety of the 
animation and the performance by the actress that really just you know how she's outrageous you know right like it just really works they planted the seed of it in case they wanted to bring her back but i get that they weren't sure yet i mean you know i again i i know what you're saying that they should have been sure but once they saw it they knew yeah, there's no real spoilers in this thing, but Mike does it, it reveal why you're saying that there's just a lot of California cuisine <laughs> in the show because he moved to California and he loves California cuisine. So there you go. Yeah, I'm still mad about the dissing of black licorice as a delicious flavor, but that's a separate issue. I think that's it for Lower Decks, but we got a little bit of news about the Orville, which has been quiet for a while. <laughs> I mean, we know we have a premiere date, which we already knew, um, March Thursday, March 10th, 2022, and it'll be called the Orville New Horizons. That's old information. But they posted a couple pictures on social. Was it Tom who posted everything or a couple of people? The importance was this is actually the because they did a teaser trailer uh, in September, but it just kind of showed an image of the bridge. No one was on it um, and some kind of dialogue. Right. This was the first image with characters and a better shot of the bridge from Hulu. So it was kind of an official publicity thing. Oh, there you go. Essentially this is the beginning of the publicity drive for the show. And you could see that the ship's been updated. Isaac has been updated. Isaac has more lights on him now. (laughs) The uniforms have been updated. Uh, We could see the new character, um, uh, played by Ann Winters, is an ensign on the bridge. She's a human. Bruce Boxleitner um, is also in the image. He's a guest star, Babylon 5. But he, you can't recognize him because he's in this crazy alien makeup. But it looks pretty good. He's playing the president of the Union, I guess. And so, you know, it's just kind of exciting to start the publicity drive, as it were, for the show, we're expecting more stuff as we get closer. In the article we did, we also shared some stuff uh, like with Discovery. Uh, uh, Seth MacFarlane likes to share stuff uh, showing the scoring of the show. He actually shared a clip of music being um, rehearsed. Well, he's a musician himself, so he loves that stuff. They've got an even bigger orchestra. I mean, this may be... He may have the biggest orchestra in Hollywood, I think. <laughs> I, I forget. But it's something like 84. It's it's a huge orchestra for this show. So he's walking around saying, my orchestra is bigger than your orchestra. All the other shows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, so we're, you know, sort of just getting started on the Orville. We hope to have more Orville updates as we get closer, including doing some interviews maybe Lori could talk about what it was like visiting the set before season three yeah or, that was or you, you visited right during where were they in shooting season three, it, right when they started right? it was right at the very beginning it was november of 2019 so they were they just built or you know sort of rebuilt all these sets everything was bigger and better and more immersive so um a friend and i and someone else who's i think like head of one of the big orville sort of I don't want to call it a fan club, but one of those groups um, got to walk around the set and explore everything. And I'm, I'm can't, I'm not allowed to describe it specifically, but I can just say that you really feel like you're on the Orville. It's incredible. The sets are gorgeous, expansive and completely immersive and fun. 
I visited the set between season one and two. And uh, what I was surprised by is the fact that it's built on two levels that when you go up the stairs, you are, you are going up the stairs. Yep. Those are real stairs. So no, it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing set. Anyway, I think it's time for black alert. Cause we're going to go on to start talking about Star Trek discovery. Although the first thing we're going to talk about isn't really a spoiler. Um, which is, there's a little merchandise news. There's a new Discovery tie-in comic book miniseries coming out in 2022 from IDW. It's called Adventures in the 32nd Century. It brings back Mike Johnson, paired up with Discovery consulting producer Kirsten Beyer. Each episode is going to focus on a different character and not kind of the big characters. So the, uh, the first issue is all about Grudge the Cat, telling Grudge's backstory of how Grudge met Cleveland Booker. That might be um, a comic so. I need to have. <laughs> and then there's going to be one about Adira, one about Detmer, and one about Linus, those, our favorite Saria. I have to say those sound really fun because I am i don't read the comics, so I feel like these would be good standalone ones if I want to give it a shot. I like the idea. They called it Adventures in 32nd Century. I thought it'd be fun if each issue was someone from the 32nd Century. Like uh, we could learn more about the president or uh, more about Vance, my favorite guy. Just Grudge. Um, and, and, and Adira, who's also oh, from yeah. the 32nd Century. Um, so half and but, half. You, know, you got half and half. Now, speaking of discovery, if you're – about the about one out of four of our listeners listens to the podcast on the Friday it's released. So if you are one of those people, go to trekmovie.com and enter for our Christmas giveaway. Um, this episode comes out on Christmas Eve. We're going to be giving away the first three seasons of Star Trek Discovery on Blu-ray and DVD. Thanks to our friends at CBS Home Entertainment. We have three copies to give away, so there's an easy contest to enter. All you need to do is say what gift you would give to your favorite character on Discovery, and uh, you are entered. Uh, USA only. We are sorry. That's their rules, not our rules. Can I just tell you there are a couple of really good ones already in our comments that I just want to give some shout-outs to. So <laughs> someone says, I'd give Pike a radiation suit. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a good one. I'd give tell thoughtful. I'd give Tilly a big hug cause she deserves it. So there are a few, a few good ones like that. I'd give grudge a fish. I like, <laughs> <laughs> so, and I really like, I would give good captain Lorca a lifeline cause I agree uh. with that, but there are lots of really fun answers, like some just sweet and some that are just very, very funny. It's nice for, the fans to have this little moment to show a little creativity and have a little fun with it. Oh, there's one more cute one I want to read. I would finish the dance with Zora and give her the tenderest kiss in the galaxy. Aw. 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 So I usually don't have time to watch The Ready Room before we record, but there was a big interview with Jonathan Frakes, which is just irresistible, so I made the time. And I thought, first of all, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's a terrific interview with Jonathan Frakes and Will Wheaton and a great combination of talking about Discovery and then talking about their relationship with each other and the old days on TNG. It's just, you cannot go wrong if you choose to sit and listen to this. It's quite lovely. Like some of the jokey stuff is fun because they talked about 
Frakes talked about when they were getting the COVID rules and they're all on Zoom. And he wasn't even, he heard about this afterwards, I guess. But they were saying like, you can't have close talking and there will be no shouting and no singing. And somebody, he thinks it was Mary Wiseman said, who's going to tell Frakes? Because he loves to sing when he's on set. <laughs> I've, I've experienced this myself. So um, yeah, that was, that was pretty funny. But they also talked about um, working on the show itself and directing Sonequa, all of which I think is worth a listen. And then I'm going to let Tony talk about his tinfoil hat moment. <laughs> the whole reason Frakes was on The Ready Room is because he directed this week's episode, Stormy Weather. Oh, I should have mentioned that. Sorry. So Will asked him about the AR wall, which he's been asking a lot of the cast as he's been going through the season. But for those of you who've seen the episode, it should be obvious he didn't use the AR wall. There were no of those kinds of scenes in this episode. So he mentioned talking to lots of people about the AR wall and how it's a huge challenge and very difficult and not everyone understands how to use it. No, yet. one guy understands how to use it. That's what he said. He said there's one person <laughs> who, cause it's, it's lighting it, it's using it, it's filming it. And he said, that's the funny part. There's only one person who knows how, but he said that he's looking forward to using it next season. Right. So my ears pricked up to that. I'm like, did you, did someone say next season? Uh, because, <laughs> As we are now into the sixth episode of Discovery, they have yet to announce another season for the show. You know, he just said it casually as if, well, of course, there's going to be a next season. So take that as you will. He's either talking about something he's been booked for. So it's not a given that he directs in every season of Star Trek. He could be talking about the next season of Strange New Worlds, which we believe is going to start shooting in February because that's also shot in Toronto also uses the AR wall. I was going to say, Oh, um, I feel sorry for everybody who has to go to Toronto in February. I mean, I love my home city, <laughs> but it is not pleasant in February. But they use that to their advantage in the episode where Tilly went away because they use their favorite, uh, quarry rock. Yeah. The rock quarry, but it was actually snowing. Yeah. And so, really cool. Uh, Right. So, you know, get ready for some ice planet stuff, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. It's hard. It gets really, really cold and relentless. It's, you know, they have a long winter there. Yeah. So shall we move on to talk about stormy weather? Speaking of a relentless winter? Sure, because I don't think we should sing stormy weather. So we should just review stormy weather. I think that's just fine. <laughs> Why don't you start with your top level thoughts I, first? Thoughts. I thought it was like a, a pretty strong episode. I liked that everything was tied together and that we got a little farther in terms of our understanding of the DMA and a little farther in understanding certain things about some of our characters, which was mostly done smoothly, but occasionally got clunky. And the, honestly, the highlight for me, which I found shocking, was that I loved the scenes with Gray and Zora. I'm so happy Gray finally has something to do that isn't just follow a deer around and smile about a deer and comment on a deer. Like now I see <laughs> why they why they have the character, why they hired the actor. This is the first, honestly, the first time I've really seen it. Maybe a little bit at the end of last season when um when Gray was a hologram. That wasn't so bad. Yeah. But this was was great. All the Zora stuff was intriguing, and I feel like it's to me, it's sort of it was a blend of sort of old school Star Trek style, but really making it clear this is a very different kind of Star Trek where we are always looking at how P 
people are being affected by what is going on. Right. I mean, discovery is rightly or wrongly always going to be a little bit more soap opery. The the emotional lives of these characters is always going to be explored more than in traditional Star Trek. And I think for a lot of people, that's something they just it just doesn't interest them as much, perhaps. And sometimes it can be overly done, but I think it was done very well in this episode. And, you know, and in a way, it's almost a little on the nose now the ship the uss discovery has emotions <laughs> yes right it's true and true now we form, need yes. we, and so now we need to deal with the ship's emotions you know um how do you feel about this ship zora but you know and if you told me oh there's gonna be you know we're gonna have this episode where they're gonna explore an anomaly but every once in a while they're gonna cut to gray playing chess with zora i'd be like really you know, don't do that. But amazingly, it worked very well. Yeah. I agree with you. Best episode for Ian so far of the series, and not, for sure. And not just because you could have a best episode for Ian and it would still, I mean, I'm going to be honest, not be great. This, I thought, was a great episode for Ian. Yeah, Ian was very good in this, as well as Annabelle Wallace, mm-hmm. who has been evolving her performance as Zora. You know, they, they paired them up. And I thought that, in a sense, both characters emerged in this episode as fully-fledged characters. Although Zora was a character in Calypso, but then kind of stopped being a character again, right? Who would only, every once in a while, say something. Right, because she hadn't gotten there yet. Like, Calypso is is still in the future. You know, and and they made it very clear in this episode, because now Zora has a little waveform thingy, a hologram to represent Zora. By the way, I'm kicking myself for that because I, I think I mentioned this in, in in our first podcast of the season, how they've added a couple things to the uh, opening credits. One was obviously the showing the destruction of Quajon, but they added this little waveform thing. And I thought it might have been something to do with the DMA, like an analysis, but it is so obviously Zora. Because mm-hmm. if you look back at Calypso, Zora was also a waveform, but a simpler version inside of that cir- those circle things all around the ship. Now Zora represents herself as a circle, a holographic circle with this waveform thing. And I love how Zora presented herself, where Zora just shows up on the bridge. Like, Hello, <laughs> right? Which I, 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 you know, I, I'm a 1980s computer guy, so I immediately thought of the Apple Mac because it introduced itself to the world with the big hello, which is kind of a big, a big part of its branding. And I thought they were borrowing a little from Steve Jobs, perhaps. But or was that also in War Games? Hello, would you like to play a game? It's a good, it's a good point. You know, so that's kind of the big character thing for this episode. Although Book, I think, has a solid sea story, perhaps. But his character arc, I think is very well handled in this episode. Well, I will say as soon as he said, it's my dad's birthday, I was like, oh, we're going to see daddy. So, I mean, I knew <laughs> yeah. that it was going to happen somehow in the episode as soon as he said it. I think it was a, a solid mid-season kind of a bridge episode. The, the work to be done in this episode is they needed to kind of pick up one clue about the DMA. So the exploration of the subspace rift, which we've seen before in Star mm-hmm. Trek, was really not going to be much of an exploration at all. Um, but I like how they kind of turned it in to 
you know, kind of like Apollo 13, where the mission basically ended as soon as it started. As soon as they got in, they're like, oh, we're screwed. Yeah. Uh, we got to get out. But I like that they built up. So they built up this excitement because when they decided to go in, you basically see that everybody's just been sort of hanging around. And now they've all been called back to work. And they're all excited, like, we're finally going to do something. And then they finally do something. And then it's just, oh. So I thought that was it was like riding the waves of their emotions. And they really relied heavily on the bridge crew and those actors in this episode and almost entirely to good effect. But there's one kind of <laughs> glaring thing that I don't know. Let's see if it bothered you as much oh, as it, it bothered did. me. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so what, what what bothered you? It then? was it was our friend uh, Owo who, you know, at first I thought it was fine that she sort of spoke up and said, I want to go, please go let me do this thing. I want to, you know, bring programmable matter to reinforce the shielding or whatever. But then the it's a weird thing that Discovery does. Like character development should be as characters are doing things. And this is the second time recently where they have a character just stop and go, when I was a kid, this thing happened. Or once this happened to me, they give a little backstory in a particularly tense moment. So as they're all about, I mean, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. As they're all about to go into the transporter buffer, she stops to tell Saru this story of something that happened to her before and i'm just like oh come like really right now you gotta you gotta stop it right now and tell the story we're all about to die but i just found the whole reason for that is that they felt like oh these these bridge scenes are getting a little dry we need to add a little tension because you know not only did she i mean she really got into saru's face Mm -hmm. right in like a weird way and she did the same with the captain where the captain when the captain says we got to get out of here she turns around and says you know you know says we can't do that captain you know in a very forceful way and it's and they say like oh well the reason she's acting this way is because of this memory of uh, in her childhood of losing a friend it's like well so that has because how many times could that have raised its head over four seasons but suddenly she's totally acting crazy um and it just it just seems like a random way to add tension to what they probably thought were drier bridge scenes yeah it it didn't add tension although i did like the way saru responded yes he was great doug was great great and actually throughout i i really liked saru and michael i thought she did great captaining in this episode and they were and they both (laughs) dealt with their you know, reminiscing crew member. <laughs> well, also. There was a subtle moment with them, and Sonequa actually mentioned this in that yes. interview last yeah. week, where they are, Doug and her now can act in a way where they don't even need to talk. They can have a whole conversation just by looking at each other, and you get what's happening. Because Saru, like the bridge crew are kind of freaking out, even though they're all lieutenant commanders and should be seasoned. They're all when they all realize that, you know, they're in a thing that's slowly dissolving space and they're next. Saru kind of goes aside to Michael and said, you know, we should probably get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and but it was very done subtly, quietly um, and without using the cone of silence. Um, and uh, and that's when. Owo has a reaction because Michael says, yeah, let's get out of here. And then 
that triggers Owo. Um, but no, I thought Doug was great. And I also think, you know, it's something actually that Jonathan Frakes was talking about in the ready room when he talked about how Sonique was able to convey so much in just her face. And I've always liked that about her too. I feel like you see a lot going on. And I thought in all of those scenes, you could see, you could see all of it. You could read it all on her face. I know what we have to do. It sucks that this is what we have to do. Like everything I felt was very present. And when she and Saru were talking, you could see it was that same thing that that he was talking about. And that was that she talked about in that interview. Freaks had a challenge with him because he doesn't get cool guest stars. I mean, he, he had the, the guy playing the dad, right? But, you know, in the last, last episode, we had a ton of guest stars. He doesn't get Tig Notaro. Um, <laughs> there's no location shooting. There's no, almost no visual effects because they're in a void. Lots of practical effects. No AR wall. Yeah, but he made it work. It just, it flowed. He did some crazy stuff with the camera. There was one shot I really liked in engineering that was almost like um like a security camera shot of like way up in the corner with Stamets dealing with Book, who are now kind of best buds, I guess. I like them together. So I think he did a good job. I know it's Frakes and we want to love Frakes, but it's not easy doing a bottle show. And I think he did everything he could with what he was given. Yeah. But it's also the writers who, because again, this is one of the stories where there's an A and a B and a C, but it was all, they were all connected. They were all yes. tied to the void. So even though they were cutting to Gray, having his conversation with Zora in the bar alone. Um, it was, it, it, it moved the it, story it, forward. It wasn't just a cutaway to a conversation that was happening separately. And the book stuff was working on two levels. One was, so Book is dealing with his dad, the hallucinations of his dad, and also with kind of Stamets of the doctors. Um, so, because it turns out that he was carrying these particles, which he got when they tried to use the spore drive, got injected into him. And that was the big clue that they wanted to reveal in this episode, which was the DMA comes from outside the galaxy, mm -hmm. which I'm kind of happy with. It's like they're saying it's not one of the usuals. Uh, it's something new. I think that's what they're saying. Yeah, right? I like, hope it it's not something from a previous Star Trek series. I hope it's something completely and totally new. Book said, oh, I thought it was someone we knew. I mean, they. I feel like this was one of those times where Discovery says it so that you get it. <laughs> um, kind, kind of like how people keep on using the word uncertainty. Like, we get it. That's the yeah, theme of the season. Yeah. You don't need to say it all the time. So I'm hoping that's not a red herring. So Book was kind of important. But his whole thing with his dad, I feel, was a good, not payoff, but really everything that we've seen in the previous episodes has led to this moment where I feel like Book is torn and his mind manifested his father to show that he feels like he wants to do something. He wants to get off the ship. He wants to go fight the DMA, but he wants to stay with Michael, who's doing things perhaps slower and more the Starfleet way. And his father's calling him a coward. So he's essentially calling himself a coward for not being out there and hunting the DMA people. So I feel like this is leading to something, but I, I enjoyed that subplot. Well, yeah. I mean, even though, again, I was, I knew the dad was coming. Um, I thought it was well done. And I actually, you know, it's funny. Cause when I interviewed him, I guess it was at Comic-Con virtual interviews, whatever. And I asked about his relationship with 
Michael now that she's the captain and has that created any tension or or changed the way that he views her and he all he did was make d- delightful jokes about how he wants to butter that crumpet but <laughs> like I like her even more now but I like that even when it was the problem of when his dad was saying you know she's you're doing it for her you're just doing what she says he was so clear and strong that like of course yes I do love her and I am doing what she says so I I liked that that part for him was clear and strong um, the other thing we found out about him was his name, his real name, right? Which is Trix. It, yes, and he's essentially rejected his the name his father gave him. Um, I think in a previous episode he talked about how there's a quote long story about why he's called Cleveland yeah. Booker. I think it's an homage to someone he knew. So maybe we'll learn that in the uh, Grudge comic book. <laughs> These two have history. His dad basically sold out to the Emerald Chain and started hunting creatures. Um, so there was some good book backstory. Yeah, he made for fun sure. of book being sad for the transworms. Yeah, his dad was dick. I mean, hundred yeah. percent. I mean, you know, they're, they're, that's. But I, I feel like there's more to it than that. You know, so he, but he definitely has some daddy issues. I think a pivotal scene was actually the final scene with Saru. And they weren't together all episode, but as the ship's being fixed by the magical programmable matter, Saru reveals that he's full of rage too. Yeah. He just doesn't let anyone see it. I always like when Saru mentions the culling for some reason, that word I really like. But I thought that was yeah. a, a lovely scene because book, first of all, they haven't had good, any. have they had scenes together? Nothing good like that. And I like that book was sort of looking up to Saru, not just physically because he has to, but also just saying, like, you seem so balanced and calm. And Saru is basically saying, look, we're both furious and we're both justified, but you can't make that your focus. And then he did this lovely Doug Jones Saru type action of just putting his hand on Book's shoulder. He's a hugger, he Doug Jones. We've all been hugged <laughs> by Doug Jones. Um, <laughs> but he's, I, I thought that was a really nice scene. It was. And I feel like Book is definitely struggling. His dad is that, this kind of inner anger of his. The question is, is is that now resolved or will we see more of that? Because I, I feel like every episode has been dropping more and more bits about Book. And in the last episode, they were kind, he and Michael seemed to be on the outs at the end of the episode. And then this one... He immediately goes, oh, I'm okay with that whole thing with Felix. Well, again, he wasn't saying he was okay with it, but he was saying he understands that she had to make the decision. And I actually liked that. I was happy that he that he said that to her. They showed that it was still a, a point of tension, but that he understood like that's, that's how it had to be. So it's not, he's not just sitting there going, you made the wrong choice and I'm going to change your mind. It's like, okay, I don't like it, but I get it. Yeah. Um, I liked. I nah, also yeah. liked their "I love yous" before he went into the buffer with Grudge in his little case. Um. Right. Like, why did why did he need? Like, he's on his ship, right, with Grudge, and everyone needs to go into the buffer, right? They're using the um, Montgomery Scott method mm-hmm. of saving yourself. But why did he need to take Grudge with him to go hug Michael? Like, I get why he because wanted to they hug did Michael. their beaming right from there. Right, but he could have beamed Grudge from his ship, then go find Michael. Well, he already had him. 
seemed fine to me. I and I just okay. I you know I'm a sucker for those two. I love them as a couple. So I really I I really liked that scene with the I love you and the hugging and the whole thing. And he said I needed to see you, and she says I'm glad. Like that was all really good. There was a lot of touchy feely stuff as people were going into the buffer, hand holding, hugging. Right. Um, well, I would expect it, it, nothing it, less. <laughs> it got a little modeling, I thought, but it was fine. Was, yeah, I, th- it was I think it would have worked better if it was just, you know, that some people should just go in, you know, <laughs> right. you know and do their job. Not everyone needs a hug before they go yeah. in or to hold someone's hand. I think even like Stamets and Culber and Pollard. Dr. Pollard, who showed up for the first time, had to hold Everybody hands held as they hands. go in. Because then one person did, again, that the... the the transporter instructions and activations are very random to me. Did anyone actually say where they were going? Like, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, maybe they were already programmed. I mean, there's all this stuff you just have to assume happened. But I've I've I have problems of in many past Star Trek series of things like that. So I'm gonna let this one go. It was nice to see Dr. Pollard again, yes. who's now Commander Dr. Pollard. Um, she had a rough moment, but, though. Yeah. But so, so because I think Culber, who's kind of also the ship's therapist, is still just a lieutenant commander. So Pollard would actually be his superior. So is Pollard <laughs> the CMO? I mean, we, you know, we don't know. You're never going to know, like we don't, Tony. You're never going to find gonna out know. who the CMO is. <laughs> Now, and speaking of chiefs, so Stamets, once again, is in charge of engineering because um, Jet Reno isn't there, even though... Oh, that, she would have been a great addition to this episode. Because in the last episode, Jet Reno was in charge of allocating the power, and here we, in this episode, the big issue was allocating power to the shields, and where's the person who's best at that? Now it's Stamets again. It's infuriating that they don't have an actual chief engineer yeah. on the ship. And that every once in a while, you know, the substitute teacher Stamets has to step in and act like it um, and then go back to being a scientist. Right. The conflation of science and engineering is so annoying because, you know, you don't ask a theoretical physicist to rebuild your carburetor <laughs> and, vi- and vice versa. But Star Trek does this all the time. And I know I've mentioned it before, so I'll just shut up about it. But uh, it's annoying. Yeah, I agree with you. I also just think Reno would have been great in those scenes where they went off. Like I could see, like Michael would say, oh, everybody has to be with somebody. And Reno would be like, no, I'm good. Bloop. Like I could just see so many fun <laughs> right. little asides and moments. And, you know, that to me would have been a great one to include. So let's get back to talking a little bit about Zora. In addition to Zora now feeling like a character on the show, I think this episode brings up a lot of big questions, which we talked about in our last episode of what do you do when your computer has emotions, which Michael was obviously concerned with in this episode. I, this is one of those things of what I think the writers were going for and what it looked like. I don't think they hit the landing on this one the way they wanted to, because I think what they were trying to show is that Zora's emotional state which Gray had to help with, created an extra sensitivity that allowed Zora to use the ship sensors to guide them out, but they eventually but then they had to sort of you know 
talk Zora into doing it because Zora was afraid. Mm-hmm. Right. The other way to look at this is the ship's computer was unable to use its standard sensor package because it was freaking out. And that if they just had a normal computer, it would have used the external sensors and it would have done everything. I don't think they made it clear enough, unless they weren't going for this, that the emotions and Zora's nature gives her an advantage that saved them. Because one one could look at this and just say that this whole episode was basically that a problematic AI who you now have to convince to do anything that a normal computer would just do. That you have to kind of talk about its feelings before it does anything. Right. Which is bad, right? Like, you don't want to, like, please fire the phasers. I don't feel like firing the phasers. You know. So- I mean, I do think, to be fair, I think part of that is because... Um, as Zora herself said, the emotions are a recent development. So it's also like the first time experiencing these emotions. And that's all great. But I think what they're trying, what they want to show is that this is a good thing. That, <laughs> right. That Zora, ha- but it didn't, I don't think it came across well enough because in my first pass through, I'm like, Zora, just do the thing. You know, Like, why aren't you using your sensors? And I think what they're saying is is that a normal computer wouldn't have noticed the slight fluctuations on the hull and wouldn't have been able to that it's Zora's so extra sensitive because Zora loves the crew so much that Zora is able to do what Zora could do. But you have the other side of that, which is now you also have to deal with the emotions of Zora as well. Because if you just had an emotional computer, and you know, Zora didn't have extra c- capacity, then it's just kind of annoying, right? Mm-hmm. To have to talk the computer into doing things, right? I mean, Michael like was very like, like you know, Z- Michael asks Zora to guide the mountains. Zora says, "I can't do that," and Michael's goes, "Okay, well, let's go have a nice little chat. Yeah, let's go talk it out." <laughs> I mean, my first thought would be, you know. Could someone just pull the processors out and get this thing to start acting normally? You know, well, they didn't it's, have it's... time for that in that particular moment. Yeah, I mean, remember this—you know—the scene in that room that we've never seen again, and probably will never see again, where Michael had to go fight Osira, and they—you know—that was the computer core of the ship. Right? Oh yeah. Someone should have just gone in there and just started pulling things yeah. out until was... Sora started acting <laughs> normally. But I think that. I think it's more important that the point they're saying is this isn't a bad thing. Zora's not going to go evil, right? Zora is becoming a person and there's advantages and disadvantages. Just, you know, and, you know, they couldn't have made it without Zora, but they also couldn't have made it without treating Zora like a person. Right. That's what they were going for. And Gray is the one who kind of started that. Gray was the one who got that going. In fact, when Zora first said... When, when Zora t- said, oh, I detect something unusual in the exterior hull of Deck 17, and Gray was like, well, you need to tell the captain. When Zora first said, oh, I don't have enough data to do that, I kept thinking about um, the Benzite guy on Next Generation, the second one. I think it's Menden. He didn't report something because he thought that it was, that he didn't have enough information yet. And I was like, oh, that's a, you know, very personal kind of thing. And then I really... Even though I could, I agree with everything you're saying. <laughs> I, I actually 
really like the scenes where Michael was talking to Zora because Michael knows a thing or two about um, heavy, intense emotions and not dealing with them the right way. Yeah, I've always said it'll be interesting for Zora to evolve to become a character. And now we're seeing that, yep. which means Zora has an emotional life and isn't just a tool to be used. Because if your tools had emotions, that would be annoying. But Zora's more than a tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Zora can do things that a normal computer can't. And But you now have to deal with the emotions. Although, I, you know... I don't think this is the end of it. No. There's definitely going to be more to this for sure. I think Zora definitely, you know, Zora created the family tree at the end, you know, where she sees the ship as her family. In case you weren't clear on that just yet. Yeah. That was another <laughs> like, oh, let's really make this oh, point. Yeah. There's certainly no hint that Zora is going to go evil or be like control. Yeah, I don't think they're it's, headed in that direction at all. But I think they're kind of headed in the opposite direction of what do you do when your ship cares so much about the crew? And I, I still think that's something that they're going to deal with. Yep, I think so too. I do have to say though, Zora's song choice um, was not, gr- I mean, that's a great song, but it's like the most bleak depressing song to be singing at this moment like i'm gonna make you feel better by singing a song great and then just you know don't know why there's no sun up in the sky oh like it was very depressing choice i guess it was kind of on the nose for (laughs) the dark void and perhaps they were it was all tied into Jenny Lamette because Jenny Lamette's grandmother, yeah. Jenny Lamette's an executive producer of the show. Her grandmother was Lena Horn. Lena Horn is, you know, starred in the movie Sang Stormy the song. Weather. Yeah. But it was still just not the most uplifting choice. <laughs> no. Well, Michael lost consciousness while she was singing it. So there you go. <laughs> it was a little, and I know Matt really was kind of bugged by this, but I, I was bugged as well. So everyone goes into the buffer. And but the captain's got to stay with the ship in the EV suit. And, you know, it was just a terrifying scene. Zora was talking about feeling like she was dying because the ship is being torn apart Mm -hmm. um, and pieces of it are flying off. I mean, big pieces of the ship are flying off. And obviously there's radiation and heat and, you know, it was very risky, whatever Michael was doing. And then suddenly she's just like, fine, you know, and it just felt like a little bit too miraculous. Like, you know, everything's okay now. And did she know that going in? Like, did she know she was taking a risk to even be on, you know, to stay with Zora? And or just, I felt like that lost some of the impact of that moment to someone, you know, should have said like, you know, we almost lost you or, you know, you barely made it. I mean, I didn't have trouble filling in the, it's true. I had to fill in the blanks, but I didn't have trouble with it. And it did feel, I got it. I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed. Were there any stakes at all? I got the sense that, yeah, she almost could. Obviously everybody would have chosen EV suits if that was a viable option. So she, I felt what I got from it was that she knew it was risky. She knew she might not make it, which is part of, I think, why Book came to say goodbye to her. 
Yeah. And so, I, I don't know. and then when she was in sick, but I assume they'd already, I mean, I always, well, the thing that I always think is funny is when you see someone in sick, and she's wearing the gown and the slippers. And I'm like, did they like dress her while she was unconscious? And was she naked? I don't know. I always think of these weird things about people wearing their new outfits, but, <laughs> but I assumed it was a given that she'd had all kinds of burns. Well, you be, I mean, and they'd already treated you, you her. get beamed into your outfit. Sure. That would be good. <laughs> like the slippers, she had slippers on her feet. Um, but <laughs> but I assumed that all of that stuff had happened, that they treated her. I, I, I agree. They could have thrown in a line like, you know, all your burns are gone or something like that just to show. Instead, it was almost like a Dorothy back from Kansas moment. Like, Buck is here and Culver's here and you and you and you. So, you know, leaning over her. Yeah. Although I did like yeah. it, like when, when Saru says everyone made it. I got little chills there. I was happy to hear that. I think they should have lost a few in the tr- buffer. I think they should have lost like 5% of the crew. Oy. Like they, That would be a you lot. Know, or something. We did lose. I mean, this show has been a little bit hesitant about, I mean, they destroy a planet, but it almost feels like, you know, and, and the family. But this crew has been fairly safe, even though they've dealt with so much. So we lost one guy who got, um, and that was a horrifying scene. Yeah. Where, uh, Pollard had to watch. Cortez, who we've never met before. I know. Well, uh, why couldn't f- they have put him in one of those beginning scenes with the crew, like heading to the bridge? Yeah, they could have they, just they thrown him in that. there. Like he could have been in the gym, and like, hey, Cortez, let's go. You know, I don't know. <laughs> he, even smarter, they should have introduced him in the last episode. Yeah, well, and, you know, and 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 with like and show that he's like he's married or has a kid or a dog or something. You, you want us to care about? Well, this guy. if they first of all, if they'd done that, I would have known he was going to die. <laughs> but I mean, look. They're... But you wouldn't have if they survived the episode. That's the thing that that would have been the trick is they do that last episode to set him up as a red shirt. Then he survives, and you think, oh, he's fine. And then you see him in the hallway, and you're like, oh, now they do it. Sure, you know, but so... I still wouldn't have been surprised when he died anyway. I mean, look, it's it's better than what they did with Arium. <laughs> so yeah, but it was a nice way for them to. I thought that Zora was just going to go completely bananas after that, losing a member of the crew. And she almost kind of did. She felt guilty over it. And that kind of put her into her fear spiral. Yeah. But I don't know. It just, it, it, it felt a little too easy to get out of it at the end. It should have been, I feel like there should have been some more stakes at the end because the ship, when you saw it in dry dock was just torn apart. I mean, it's just hard to imagine that everyone was just fine and Michael was fine. And it just, it seems like I, more people wouldn't have made I it. I think they just it, didn't it, have time, you know, cause that would have yeah. taken, they, they'd have to devote some time to that. Um, yeah. And they just, you know, they're cramming stuff in these days. Every episode is pretty packed. Fair enough. But I, but um, I mean, that's not a great reason. I'm not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I agree that there are little things that could have helped along the way. We just hope that someone got to Linus, who was in his quarters under a heat lamp for some reason. They never explain what that means, but I guess Linus, like like maybe this is like an annual thing he goes through, or maybe he was (laughs) sick. Um, But that was why Adira was on the bridge, because they wanted Adira on the bridge. I loved how excited Adira was to go. Like, you know what it reminded me of? It actually reminded me of when I was working on After Trek and I'd wake up in the morning and be like, yay, and be like 
so excited to go to work in the morning, like especially on our shoot days or something, I would be so excited. And so I, I, I felt it. I was like, yes, because just like, yay, they were so excited to go to the bridge. But they resisted the urge. Maybe there was no urge that even though their smarty pants was on the bridge, that everyone still got a chance to join in, mm-hmm. that Michael wasn't coming up with all the solutions and Adira, that the rest of the bridge crew were throwing things out there. They came up with the dumb sonar thing because <laughs> they always have to dumb down the right. science to, it's like sonar. It's like, it's like really? making a long distance call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they're, you know, they all got involved. Nilsson got to say something, you know, everyone got to say something, everyone got to do something. And uh, there was a little like conference, you know, on the bridge yeah. where they were all, brainstorming that was good i like that Um, everything about all that and all the actors did a good job it was just we didn't like the owo kind of random agro owo agro owo was the (laughs) thing and it wasn't it's not even it wasn't an acting issue it was purely a writing issue yeah you know so before we kind of move on to wrapping up did you get any new senses about the dma or species 10c besides it's outside the galaxy. Do you, or do you any theories, any thoughts on that? No, I only hopes. I have hopes, but not thoughts. How about you? <laughs> I, I'm exactly the same. I kind of want and hope for something new, something you know, to say, create something as cool as the queue is hard, but let's say as cool as the Metrons, right? That's like a, a reasonable yeah. level, a reasonable bar. You know, just create something new and interesting and maybe something they could deal with in the future. And don't be Michael Burnham's dad. Oh, God. Sorry. Yes. Just don't be specifically related to Michael Burnham in some way. I really hope this isn't a red herring. The the outside the galaxy. I hope that's a genuine thing. Um, Yeah. Like, I I hope it's I hope it's something new and intriguing that raises um, ideas and concepts that we can think about it in a new way. Yeah. This is a bridge episode, but it was a good solid bridge. You know, it got us to the next episode. It did a good job. It didn't feel like we were wasting our time and spinning our wheels or doing random off topic subplots. It was all well connected. Yep. You know, now I'm kind of wondering like, what are they going to do with gray? Like what's gray? Is gray going to be the Zora Wrangler on the show? Like, do they have to involve gray every time Zora has a problem? Um, or maybe maybe Gray will be working with Zora so that Zora's ready the next time. Who knows? But I, I thought those scenes worked and I I hope that there's more stuff for Gray to do. I mean, they do have the option. Anytime they want to send Gray off to be a guardian or to do some guardian training, they can do that. Um, and they've left that door open. But finally seeing Gray be interesting... Uh, made me interested in seeing more gray, maybe. Although having Culber put Zora on the couch and do some of his therapy might be fun, yes. too. So <laughs> there really wasn't a lot of Culber in this episode, not really a lot of Stamets. But um, at least Stamets got like a fun, he had like some fun moments or like a line here and there. Like when he says, I, when, when Burnham asks for power and he says, I, she she says, if you're sitting on any extra power, and he goes, I think I've got some tucked un- tucked away under my chair, and then later mentions he doesn't even have a chair, which is a good point. <laughs> but Culber just did almost nothing. But he had his 
his cute face. Getting back to how Stamets and Books are kind of buddies now. So there was a subtle thing. So the captain orders them to use the spore drive. He's a little nervous about that. So he's, you know, he says someone needs to monitor the data. And then Book comes in to say, well, I'll do the spore drive. And Stamets says, well, I guess now's a good a time as any for me to learn to delegate. Because yeah. he's, he's not very good at that. But it they're they're past their yeah. jealousy is you know it's just it's just kind of stamets is self-aware um and they you know they tried to spore although it didn't work but uh no he he had some good stuff but not not really character development for him this wasn't no, but at least he had his moments. episode he had moments what they've been doing in season four very well is it's not all about michael every episode she's involved in every storyline but it's not all about her anymore. I think that, you know, she's she's the captain of the ship. She's very heavily involved. But I think that, you know, it isn't always Michael saving the galaxy. Michael coming, you know, Super Michael with everything. Although there was a little bit about that in episode 401 when she left the ship in the middle of a crisis. But, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with how they're handling... Michael is captain. I think she was doing great captain stuff the way she was throwing, you know, everyone give me ideas and no. And just deciding when to abort the mission, just realizing this is like making decisions, making good decisions and moving forward. And, you know, in that, again, I go back to that interview that we watched from the 92nd street. Y, where she talked about how Michael has always made mistakes and continues to sometimes make mistakes, and that's okay. And I think a lot of the criticism that she's supposed to be perfect, she's not supposed to be perfect. She's someone who makes tons of mistakes. And then I liked that um, in this one, she's she's good, confident captain who knows what the right thing to do is. Or knows when to ask for help, really, which is the best captain is someone who gets a lot of input and then makes the decision. And that's what was happening in this episode. Yep. I guess we should just move on to our bits of the week, right? Yep. Why don't you start? Mine is actually something that you introduced me to, but I'm now glad you did, which is this doctor in Anaheim, California, has turned his optometry office. So these are both, both of my things are um, for those of us who wear glasses. He's turned his optometry office into a whole Star Trek themed thing. So we're going to, we'll link to a video in the show notes. You just have to check it's this out. It's so just amazing. Great. It's so great. And I also, I wear contacts and glasses. Um, so I, yeah, I wish my optometrist had an office like that. His, his name is Dr. Garrett Wada. He's in Anaheim. It's called, you know, Wada optometry. I'm thinking it's, it's, he's about 90 minutes away from me, but I'm thinking next time I need to get an eye exam. I'm <laughs> do it. Go. Even though my optometrist is like 10 minutes away. It's it's worth the hour and a half just to get to the office. I would totally do the same thing. My other eye-related thing is uh, last week the FDA approved a drug called Vuity, which is essentially Retinax. It, these eye drops Ooh. you use, and this is just for reading glasses at this point, but you use the eye drops and you don't need reading glasses. Huh. And it works. It won't help Captain Kirk, of course. He still needs the re- his his reading glasses. Because um, he'll be allergic. Dr. McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> but for the rest of us, you could now get Retinax, except they decided to call it Vuity, because so, I guess we're in an alternate timeline. Uh, but there you go. 
Um, I'll I'll give this random piece of advice to people who wear contacts and are nearsighted, but now getting to a, the stage of needing reading glasses, monofocals, people, they will solve the problem as well. Monof? What, what is that? Um, it's one of my contacts is for distance and one is for close up and they learn to work together. It takes a little while. And now I've stopped using reading glasses crazy yeah so what's your bit of the mine week? is this i found it randomly and it's an interview with um a star trek guest actor named john putch and he played actually he did play the benzite so he was mordok he was menden on tng and he also played a reporter in star trek generations and the interview is great because he gives so many details about that costume and how he had to activate the smoke himself and how long it took and what they did to his hands. It's, it's a fascinating read. And then he has some great stories about filming Generations, how Shatner like fell and went flying and was very Shatnery, and how he got to hang out for a couple of days while they were filming this. So it's a terrific read, lots of fun details, and we'll put up a link to it. And that's at The Companion. Sorry, I just want to say there's one other fa fascinating detail, which I did not know until I read that article, which is that his mother was Jean Stapleton, who played Edith Bunker on All in the Family. Crazy. That is crazy. I'm, I always love interviews with someone you kind of don't think about, people who play minor characters, but they often have these great stories about what it was like on the set and just really add a lot of flavor to what it's like to create these shows. Yeah, and especially when, when you have to play someone that's such a unique alien it was the first time we saw them they had that weird thing with the smoke so there was a lot going on there that he had to deal with so i think it's a great read so that's it episode 71 of all access star trek merry christmas this episode comes out on christmas eve so if you celebrate christmas merry christmas to you we'll be back next week with what we've now learned is the mid-season finale <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Star Trek Discovery for our final episode of the year, our New Year's episode. That's another reason they changed the schedule, because they wanted it to match up with our end of year. It's really thoughtful of There's, them. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> and then we'll be moving on to Prodigy in 2022. So thanks for listening and come back next Friday. Bye-bye. <laughs>